Broadcasting. The PSAs you hear on Miller and Condon and iHeartMedia Des Moines are presented in part by Nick Mick. We take care of our own. Now, here's Miller and Condon. Welcome back, Miller and Condon, Des Moines Sports Station, 1460 KXNO. Take you up until noon. Zubin Mahente at the bottom of the hour. Uh, Trent, did you see yesterday that, uh, and I knew that they would, uh, Twitter found the the lady at the Pacers game that was so vocal in her criticism of the Bulls. They found her. They found her, as Indeed, they always they do. Did. We're going to find Kim Rills. In fact, we did right now. Here she is. Iris.iowa.gov website, where we're now rolling Iowa's COVID-19 numbers in real time. The latest update allows you to see case counts for the current day and look back at the numbers for any day since we began testing in early March. You can see trends for the state as a whole and for individual county um, and individual counties. You can review data on specific demographics, recovered cases and reported deaths, and see results from serology testing. The best way to understand the data and what it's telling us about virus activity is simply to explore the site. I want to spend a few minutes showing you some of the new features, and in doing so, I'll provide an update on the current state of COVID-19 across Iowa. From the homepage of coronavirus.iowa.gov, click on current cases in the main navigation or just scroll down the page. The four graphs you see provide an at provide an at-a-glance view of individuals tested, individuals positive, total recovered, and total deaths. Each bar graph provides the numbers of each individual day and includes a rolling 14-day trend line indicating what's happening over time. You can clearly see that the trend line for individuals testing has risen dramatically over the last few weeks, reflecting our expanded testing capacities, capabilities across the state. You'll also see that the number of positive cases is trending down, total recovered continues to trend up, and we are closely monitoring monitoring trends in deaths. The chart below shows all this data by county, and each graph and the chart can be downloaded to a spreadsheet by simply clicking on the icon in the top right corner of each item. So let's move on to case counts. Here you'll see an overview of the numbers of Iowans who have been tested. Those who tested both negative and positive, the positivity rate over time and for the previous day. Again, you can visually see the trends in these numbers. While the numbers of Iowans testing positive are trending down, the number of individuals testing negative is trending up. In fact, one in 34 Iowans test negative compared to one in 206 who test positive. We've also seen the percentage of individuals testing positive over time decrease gradually over the last two weeks. Currently, our average positivity rate over time is 14.3%, and yesterday's rate was 7.1%. You can also look at positive cases by county. Just click on any county on the map, and the numbers on the graphs above will update to show only that county. The graph below the map will show you daily totals over time. Just hover over any bar to display the number of positive cases. 
You can also see statewide numbers for positive symptomatic versus asymptomatic cases and a variety of demographic information including age, gender, race, and ethnicity. These numbers are not provided by county to prevent identifying individual cases. Further down on the page, you can see similar data for recovered cases by county, daily numbers and demographic information, and the same information is available for deaths. Next, uh, let's take a look at the newly revised long-term care dashboard. Here you can track the number of reported outbreaks, staff and residents of long-term care facilities who've tested positive and recovered, the number of residents who have sadly lost their lives to the virus, bar graphs show the trends for positive cases and those recovered. The chart below breaks the information out by facility. Symptomatic versus asymptomatic cases are also provided as is demographic information. Finally, we've included a new section specifically dedicated to information about results from serology testing. As you can see, more than 12,000 Iowans have been given a serology test, which detects COVID-19 antibodies and indicates that a person has had and recovered from the virus. I've asked Dr. Padati to share more information about how we're using serology now and what we've learned and plans to potentially expand this testing even more. Thank you, Governor Reynolds. So when we talk about serology testing, it's important to keep in mind that this is a different kind of test from the diagnostic PCR testing that we've been doing to find people who have a current infection. So that PCR testing is what involves a swab in the nose, and that's looking for tiny pieces of genetic material that indicate that somebody is infected with the virus currently. Now, serology testing is a slightly different kind of testing. This uses a sample from the blood to look for proteins called antibodies. Now, these antibodies are things that our white blood cells form as part of the response to a variety of bacteria and viruses. So when the body is exposed to something new, our white blood cells will start to make some of these antibodies in a general way but then they learn how to make more specific antibodies that are specific to the parts of a bacteria or virus itself. And those are really valuable because that's what's going to help us learn how to fight something again if we have to see it again. And that's precisely how our vaccines work, by showing our bodies a small piece of something so that if we have to see it, we're able to fight it, which is why it's so important for people to continue to stay up to date on things like those routine vaccines. Now, we know that people who have been infected with COVID are starting to develop these kinds of antibodies. And in fact, the FDA has issued what we call several emergency use authorizations or approvals for tests to help detect these kinds of antibodies. And our own state hygienic laboratory is using one of these tests. In fact, SHL has now made this test available through a test request form on their webpage where providers can decide if it's needed for an individual patient. And the guidance we've provided is for those individuals who may have been suspected or confirmed to have had COVID-19 and have been at least seven days since their symptom onset, because remember it takes a little bit of time for those antibodies to develop. 
We also suggest that it could be considered in people who want to be plasma donors. So these are people who would have been infected with COVID who are now trying to donate blood or plasma to help treat people who are currently infected, which is a really important thing to do. And then finally, we've included healthcare workers, first responders, and critical infrastructure workers to help us better understand what some of their exposures might have been. Now, all of these tests are, may also be offered at other laboratories, and these tests all fall under the mandatory reporting order to the Iowa Department of Public Health. And we ask that these tests be reported to us because we do follow up with these individuals. We're trying to learn a little bit more about their potential exposures, a little bit more about what they do, and perhaps help us learn more if these people were then to become sick again. This is another example of information, as you heard from Governor Reynolds, that we're now sharing on our webpage as well. So if you visit the webpage at coronavirus.iowa.gov, in addition to seeing information about positive PCR tests or currently infected individuals, you'll also see information about these serology tests. And that information will show you those tests over time, and it will show you where those tests are coming from in counties across Iowa. And it will also show you the percent that are positive so far. So you'll see, for example, 1,672 of the 12,069 reported tests so far, or about 14% are positive so far. There have been many efforts in other countries and other states to start to look at things like this. And as we gather more information, we'll be able to learn a bit more. Others have seen ranges between two up to 20%, depending on the population that we're looking at and the kind of sample that we might do. Now you've heard me say many times that there are many things we have to learn about this virus as we move forward. And this is another example of a place where we have more to learn. We don't yet know how well these antibodies work and we don't know how long that they last. But it's gonna be really important for us to better understand the kind of immunity that people are developing and also to help us understand where in our communities this virus might have been and where it might be moving. And so this is another example of a tool that we're going to continue to use to learn more, to gather and share information as quickly as we can with Ireland to help you all make safe and healthy decisions for your families. And with that, I can turn it back to you, Governor. Thank you, Dr. Patati. I want to commend you and your team uh, for the forward-leaning approach with serology testing. Not many states are using this test to the extent that we are uh, at this time. So I'm extremely proud of the work that you're doing and the difference it's making in helping us really understand uh, even more about virus activity as we all work to work with Iowans and their families to contain and manage it while implementing our recovery plan for Iowa. So stay on in case we have any questions, but I appreciate that update um, on, on serology. So for working parents, uh, that raises many questions about child care as we're talking about getting Iowans back to work. Moms and dads want to be assured that child care uh, is safe and others may be looking for a new provider. Uh, that is an important issue that many parents are struggling with as they prepare to return to work. I've asked Kelly Garcia, the Director of the Department of Human Services, to provide us an update and some reassurance to Iowa parents about uh, how we're supporting child care across the state of Iowa. Director Garcia? 
Hi, Governor. Thank you for having me. I'm Kelly Garcia, the director of the Iowa Department of Human Services. As a working mom of two young kids whose child care center is currently closed right now, I know just how difficult this balance is. So when it comes to our department's role in ensuring Iowa's children have access to safe, quality child care, I take this responsibility incredibly seriously. And I know right now many parents are concerned. I want to share some of the things that we're doing to help support our child care providers and ensure the safety of all children in Iowa. These are challenging conversations, and I want you to know we are very thoughtful in our guidance. We're working closely with the Iowa Department of Public Health, and we're balancing both the public health aspect and the overall well-being of children. We also know how important accessible child care is to help parents continue to work or return to work. Like you, we want children to be in safe environments with appropriate background checks, hygiene practices, and safety measures. And to that end, we've issued robust guidance with strong mitigation and hygiene measures and clear reporting protocols. Child care providers check temperatures of staff and children, and parents drop their children off at the door. We're going to be working closely, tracking any reports of illness in partnership with IDPH, and we'll be releasing updated guidance later this week as well, for, as well as guidance for summer camp. This guidance directs all child care providers to report positive COVID cases of staff and children. The recommended time for closure may vary depending on the number of cases, the location, and the size of the program. And closures may be from two days to two weeks. We will work closely with IDPH to determine the appropriate time frame and to ensure robust hygiene and cleaning before any reopening occurs. We will ensure all staff and children have access to testing. In addition to updated guidance for child care providers, we'll also be providing guidance to parents to help them identify safe, good programs during the summer, to help them know what to look for and to ask the right questions so they feel confident in their child care decisions. Over the past few months, we've worked to equip our child care providers with disinfectant and thermometers. This isn't a role we typically fulfill, but was absolutely the right thing to do. We're providing financial support to ensure child care providers are able to close and deep clean should they need to. And we're providing them additional financial support because we know that there was a child care shortage in Iowa before the pandemic. And we need to ensure continued access to child care long after the pandemic, pandemic is over. Because of all these efforts we've undertaken, we continue to ensure that safe, quality child care is available throughout our state for essential workforce and for our returning workforce. With more than 10,400 child care slots currently available, you can find all of this information as well as a map to locate child care that meets all of our safety requirements and reporting practices on our website, dhs.ios.gov. To the parents tuning in, I know the things we have to balance are tough in the best of times. At DHS, we're trying to strike the right balance using all the tools we have and we'll continue to adjust our approach as we move forward in very close consultation with public health. To the child care providers, thank you for being there to support Iowa's families. And to my DHS child care team, the work you've done to support families and providers alike is nothing short of tremendous. Governor Reynolds, thank you for your leadership during these uncertain and unprecedented times. Thanks for having me here today.
Thanks, Kelly. I appreciate that very much. And as I also want to thank you and your team for the support that you've provided for so many Iowa families across this state during this really unprecedented time. And I know that the new child care guidance will be very reassuring to providers and families as more Iowans return to work. In closing today, I too want to take a moment to thank all of the child care providers across Iowa. Child care is always essential, but never more than it has been these last 11 weeks. Without child care centers and in-home providers remaining open, our health care workers, our first responders, manufacturing employees, and others would not have been able to do their part to keep Iowa's Iowans healthy and safe and keep our essential businesses operating. So thank you for caring for Iowa's children and supporting their families throughout this critical time. And with that, we will open it up for questions. Dave Price, go ahead. Good morning, Governor. I don't know if this is a question for you, but probably many of you and Dr. Padati. Um, what is your guidance now that you've been reopening? What's your guidance for families who are now thinking about should their, should their kids be able to go play with neighbors? Can you talk just a little bit more about social interaction, basically? You still have the, the guidance that we shouldn't have gatherings of more than 10 people, but what if it's beyond family? Can you guide people as they start looking at Memorial Day gatherings and such going forward? Play dates, all those kind of things. Dr. Padati, do you want to address that? Can you hear the question? Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, I think it's a great question, and it's another example of a place where I think we're going to continue to have conversations to support families as we start to get back to regular activities. And I think as a pediatrician in particular, I appreciate that it's particularly hard for some of our younger kids to understand um, social distancing. And so thinking about what we practically do to help um, get back to some of those interactions in a safe way is going to be really important. So I think thinking about doing things slowly, right? Still thinking about the smaller gatherings, um, still thinking about all of the good public health measures like frequent hand washing when possible, even with children. Um, and also thinking about how, you know, we wanna make sure if there's somebody who's sick or somebody who's been around or in close contact with somebody who's sick, those people still need to be staying home, right? And still keeping, you know, our um, older islands or islands with underlying conditions, you know, still encouraging those people to avoid those um, you know, more intense group gatherings or higher risk settings as much as possible is going to be important. But I do think we recognize that there's a lot of important things for children as part of their um, development and growth that we need to start getting back to, and we want to do that in a safe way. And so I think we can continue to provide support and guidance on that. And right now I would say we want to just make sure people are, are practicing those good routine public health measures getting alert when people aren't feeling well, keeping a close eye on symptoms in children and adults alike, and still reinforcing, you know, those public health um, strategies, particularly among our vulnerable population. Thank you, Dr. Padati. And we're going to continue to, to work on those. Iowans are doing a great job of being responsible. And as we do that and we continue to see the numbers uh, trend in the way that they are, then we're going to continue to look for opportunities to, in a very responsible and safe manner, move forward. David Pitt, Associated Press. Yes, thank you. So, Governor, there's reporting out today that the Trump administration plans on pulling 40,000 National Guard soldiers on federally approved Title 32 coronavirus duty in the state. Um, 
on June 24th, which would be just the day before many qualify for early retirement and education benefits under the GI Bill. Are you aware of any plans to end the federal deployment on June 24th? And if so, what effect would that have on our testing and the assistance that yeah. these guards, men and women are performing? And yeah. and does it bother you that that might shortchange them well, if first they of are all, pulled off duty? No, first of all, I want to thank the Trump administration for actually authorizing Title 32. That has brought tremendous resources to our attempt to deal uh, with the COVID-19 um, uh pandemic. And so we're very appreciative of that. We've already sent in and asked for an extension. They did that through June. We will be asking for an additional extension to keep uh, the Title 32 in place um, through possibly the end of July. So we're already working on asking for an extension. And actually several of the governors that were on the phone call yesterday uh, reiterated the same thing. Great appreciation for uh, allowing the Title 32 and to give us the resources that the National Guard, they've been critical in the case investigation and help, helping set up the um, Test Iowa sites across the state, as well as uh, delivering our PPE uh, to different um, long-term care facilities and hospitals across the state. So we're very grateful to their efforts in addressing the pandemic, and we're going to continue to work with the administration and look for ways to, to extend that uh, a little bit longer. We're going to go to Rod, I think is that... Thank you, Governor. Um, you're, you're about a week out from deciding whether to reopen the remaining businesses that have been ordered closed under your emergency proclamation. Some of those appear to pose special challenges for social distancing and crowd control. Are, are you using a different or stricter set of criteria in determining how and when to allow those activities to resume? And what are your metrics telling you at this point? So I think when we look at some of the larger gatherings and the length of time that they are gathering that some of the um, data points that we're looking at when we're making the decisions but what we've seen as we work with the different associations and the different businesses is they really are being proactive and reaching out to us and talking about the um, good practices that they're putting in place so that they can actually apply social distancing that they can limit the capacity to the businesses and just various things that they're trying to be proactive on whether that's uh, mask facial covers um, just different param uh, parameters that they're putting in place. And so we've had several organizations reach out to us. We'll be reviewing that. And I'm going to do, we'll be making an announcement tomorrow. And then as we continue to review the declaration that we have in place, uh, we'll make some um, other announcements next week because I think it expires on the 27th or the 28th. So we're continuing to reevaluate on a daily basis. We know that it's important that we continue in a very responsible, safe, measured, phased-in manner to continue to open up and what we're seeing from businesses and from Iowans, they also are being very responsible in how and thoughtful in how they are bringing their businesses back online. So it's been a great effort uh, by everyone across the state and because of that we're continuing to see positive trends and so we're going to continue to monitor that and look for opportunities to continue to bring more businesses online. The list is getting narrow, uh, narrower all the time. Easy for me to say, right? Natalie, Iowa Public Radio. Governor, I was wondering kind of what kind of serology tests the state is using and sort of how are you using these serology tests to sort of make decisions about the state and reopening? Dr. Padati, I think she said it's another tool. 
Yeah, so um, the exact assay that our state hygienic laboratory is using is, is an Abbott architect that detects IgG. So it's type G immunoglobulin, which is that longer lasting memory type of antibody that I mentioned. Um, and again, this is one of the tests that's received in EUA through the FDA. Um, and the way that we've been offering it um, so far is to those groups of individuals that I mentioned. So people who have been suspected or confirmed to have had COVID-19 and for whom it's been at least a week since that time period, um, you know, because we need to offer time for those antibodies to develop. Um, persons who want to be confirmed for plasma donation, again, which is just an incredibly important thing um, to help, you know, provide a potential option for currently sick people. Um, and then those healthcare workers, first responders, and critical, critical infrastructure workers. And, you know, the goal with a group like that is to try and understand, you know, given that they've continued to have to serve in roles, you know, throughout this response, is to try and understand what some of their exposures might have been. Now, in addition to that, um, you know, there are also other labs that might be offering this test, again, that should be reported to the state. And when we look at all that information, um, it's another way for us to help understand disease activity. And so it's just another tool that we can use to get a sense of the patterns of where this virus may have been um, and where there may still be portions of the population that maybe have not yet been exposed. Um, and again, it's an example of a place where we need to understand a little bit better how long that immunity lasts. All right, uh, Governor Kim Reynolds in her uh, daily press conference. We'll take a time out. Back to sports. Our friend Zubin Mahente from ESPN will join the program next. Lots to get into with Zubin. We do. we got a plate full with Zubin. We're going to hear from Zubin when we come back as we take you up until, well, just before noon on Des Moines Sports Station, 1460 KXNO and 106. See you soon. Put a little play in your day with the Iowa. Welcome back. It's our final segment here on a Tuesday. Miller and Condon take you up just before noon. Murph and Andy coming up at 2. Of course, the Fanatics uh, at 4 o'clock. As we mentioned, our final guest of the day is our friend Zubin Mahente. joins us here, as he normally does in this spot, to wrap things up on a Tuesday. Zubin, it feels like there's some things to talk about. Good to have you on, as always. How have you been, Zubin Mahente? Doing great, yes. I think sports coverage, as crazy as it sounds, increased exponentially over the weekend. There wasn't a ton going on, but a ton is more than barely anything going on. <laughs> no, it really does. You know what else, Zubin, from where I sit anyways, it seems like we're about to get some clarity on the uh, remainder of the season plans for both the NHL, the NBA, Major League Baseball, and the Players Association seemingly are working towards an agreement. We know the NFL's bound and determined. Now we're starting to see some uh, some conference commissioners uh, in college football come out and you know kind of lay a pathway as opposed to two or three weeks ago when maybe that pathway, if they had one, they certainly weren't sharing that. But we're starting to hear some details. It feels like we're inching our way to at least knowing a tentative plan. I would agree. The sports that came back, the one advantage that they have, and this is from a small indulgent point of view, if you're UFC, you've got a huge market to grow, and right now if those sports that you just mentioned were playing, if we were in the midst of the NBA playoffs or the Major League Baseball regular season or the NFL was a full go, which I guess tentatively it is, the UFC wouldn't be getting a ton of attention. 
NASCAR, which has precipitously declined in the last 10 to 15 years, would not be getting a lot of attention. Golf, outside of the Masters and the PGA, which actually would have just wrapped up this past weekend, outside of those two events, they'd be searching for attention. And as we know, soccer's been searching for attention for like 30 years. So it's one of those things where those four sports right now have a great opportunity from a tiny, selfish, indulgent point of view to say until these big boy major pro sports return, we can actually maybe gain a few fans. But you're right. If the NBA has any designs on starting the next season on time, as well as the National Hockey League, they need to find a solution and find a solution pretty quick. And as to your point for the colleges, Larry Scott said, I believe, last Monday, I heard it say on the Dan Patrick show, that all the Power Five commissioners, I was actually surprised to hear this, all the Power Five commissioners talk every single day together, and Scott does it in the morning Pacific time. So the idea that, well, you know, maybe the Big Ten will do their own thing, and the schools that are ready to play will play. We'll see what Notre Dame wants to do at the ACC. We'll see what happens in the Big 12, what's going on out west. I think there's this assumption that if some schools are ready to go, they'll go. The others won't. Franklin's endorsed it. Jim Harbaugh's endorsed it. But I think it's one of those things where behind the scenes, even though college football has not even started, the fact that these five guys are talking together every day doesn't mean uniformity, but they are definitely looking at a way where a rising tide lifts all boats. I don't think you're going to see a situation where the Big Ten's out in front or the Big 12's out in front and some of these other leagues can't go. I think despite the rationale that everybody's out for themselves and we play the FCS and you don't, I think you're going to see some level of uniformity in college football. Otherwise, these five power brokers who have a million things on their plate individually, constituent-wise, would not be talking to each other in unison every single day. There has to be some level of togetherness. I don't know what it's going to mean for college football, but I do think that those guys talking together means we're going to try to do something in concert as opposed to whoever's ready, go, and when the next people are ready, you get a second shift. No surprise, uh, Texas said, hey, pro sports, you can go. Arizona had said it, what, a week or two ago. But yesterday when you hear from New York and Governor Cuomo out there after the impact, and you certainly know it there, uh, how they've been hit, seeing professional sports, even without fans, allowed back. But the biggest one, Gavin Newsom of California. And California just seemed to, to be almost completely different than everywhere else in the country. That was the one for me that pushed it over the edge and got my excitement level certainly revved up. How about you, Zubin? I would agree. Gavin Newsom, if you would have listened to his comments, now obviously for different states, phase one is going to mean something different for Governor Reynolds than it's going to mean for Governor Lamont in Connecticut or Governor Newsom in California. But I don't think anybody was talking, to your point, Trent, as cautiously as Governor Newsom. So, for example, when the NFL said they were going to go full tilt into the NFL's credit right now, their plan has not changed. Governor Newsom looked right at it and said, I don't think you're going to be playing NFL games in this state. Obviously, you've got the 49ers, the Rams, and the Chargers. And at this particular point, I'm not saying he's softened. There could be a resurgence. You never know. Los Angeles County is still in a lockdown. His ratings are sky high, as are for most governors. But he was the most cautious about the return of sports, essentially saying, the NFL thinks they're going to play some games in the Golden State in 2020. They're mistaken. He essentially basically said that. Like, we're shut down for the rest of 2020 mm-hmm. in terms of those sorts of crowds. He had five Major League Baseball teams 
in the state of California as well. That wasn't getting nearly as much attention to the NFL as the NFL and MLB as MLB. But I would agree with you. He and Cuomo yesterday were both very cautiously optimistic. But you got to remember, in a couple of these states, they haven't opened barbershops yet. Right. So the idea that we can go right to the NFL is a leap. But it's a leap that he would not have allowed himself a few months ago. So I totally agree. His words have changed just a little bit. The tone seems far more optimistic in my eyes. Subban, have you seen the uh, 67-page proposal uh, of what Major League Baseball wants to incorporate? Should they come back? Everything from no exchange of the lineup cards, no celebrating a home run in the dugout, or a walk-off, no fighting, no conversations between a runner at first base and the first baseman. Uh, what else? The, uh, th- the third base coach can't touch his face when giving <laughs> signs. You know, he can't touch his cap and then go to his nose and go to his ear. Those things are out. It's a a pretty detailed list, Ubin, but I think a list that uh, that needed to be put out there. It's um, in one hand, it was kind of awkward to read that you know how are you going to enforce these things, but at least someone uh, within the organization of MLB uh, is, is taking the time to you know put in place some of these things uh, for preventative measures. There's no doubt about it, and I also think there's probably a bunch of things as crazy as meticulous as 67 pages is. Like anything pretty much in life, uh, there's going to be like 10 things that they thought of on day one when a game happened that wasn't even in the 67. Great point. Manual. You can only yep. think about, right, the things you're thinking about. I would say this. I was talking to, it's a little bit of a cross-sports pollination, but it does make sense. I was talking to our lead soccer analyst, Taylor Swellman, this weekend doing some ESPN radio, and I only bring it up because Germany's top soccer league, the Bundesliga, which is a very widely globally followed league in many countries outside the United States, And what he said was the action came back Saturday, and that's all fine and good, and there were some social media celebrations, and there were some guys who were probably a little bit too close to each other. But he said the key is, and this is what I think Major League Baseball is really looking at, because they seem closer than anybody to returning just because of the July timeline and the plans that they've put in place. Taylor said the games are done, great. But now the most important thing is the next six to eight days. Meaning the games are done, now everybody's back together, now the tests are being done, where are the tests coming back? Now, it's a little bit different. Germany's a much smaller country than the United States. We have 330 million people. We have a much bigger geographic country. The travel is going to be far more expensive than it is for soccer clubs in a smaller European country. But his point was, if you're MLB, especially because you want to get this thing fast-tracked before anybody else, you're ready to go with your proposal. Now you're looking at a league that is the gunplay. Now what's it going to be like when the tests come back? Because the tests are going to have to be ramped up, and in every sport are going to come hot and heavy. Dr. Fauci had said last week if the NFL were to return, he would have guys tested on Saturday and Sunday. That's a lot of tests. Mm. Major League Baseball has said, though, that not only do they have enough adequate tests to not take away from the public sector, but their laboratory in Utah, which is generally used to test for performance-enhancing drugs, is now going to be used to create more medical supplies that can actually help the general population. So their, their stance is we got everything to cover our guys, and we got this lab out here that's so great, we're going to be able to give extra tests to the public. So I think they're keeping their eye on some of these leagues now that they're back, and soccer, soccer, and baseball, baseball, and it's apples to oranges in the United States versus Europe. But it's one of those things But now we're on the case. We're on the trek back, and let's see how many guys test positive this week in the German soccer league. It has nothing to do with America, 
but it's sort of a postscript. The games are done. Now we're into a phase that nobody's really stepped into. And I think Major League Baseball is taking a good, hard look at that because eventually they hope to be there themselves in about six weeks. Talking with ESPN Zubin Mahente, it's Miller and Condon on KXNO. Hey Zubin, uh, over to the last dance, the finale coming up on Sunday night. We watched uh, just an incredible end to things. And for me, one of the most impactful parts, Steve Kerr talking about the passing of his father. It was a story that I knew, but it was even more in-depth. And maybe the interesting angle is Michael Jordan going through what he did in the killing of his father. Same thing with Steve Kerr, yet two guys that didn't talk about it. The competitors, the teammates that they were, it wasn't something that they talked about. Yeah, you know, I think prior to Kerr becoming the head coach of the Golden State Warriors, I don't think almost any sports fan really knew of this story. If you lived in Arizona in the 80s, and you were there where Steve Kerr was such a huge, popular player with the Arizona Wildcats, you might remember it. But really, he was then known by the general public for being the ultimate winner with the Bulls and, you know, as he likes to say, bailing out Michael again and with the Spurs. (laughs) But it's one of those things where until he got the Warriors job, people were like, you know, who really is Steve Kerr? Man, he's tied to Popovich. He's tied to Jordan. He's tied to Phil Jackson. And then he started digging into the story and people found out about his father and was assassinated, um, that's a story that I think for a lot of last dance fans or non, let's say, you know, Warriors fans, that's a story that they may have heard for the first time on Sunday night. And obviously with Michael's father being killed basically while napping on the side of the road, two incredibly competitive guys that just didn't have the opportunity to really let their emotions out. And I thought it was cathartic and I thought it was a brilliant way to put it in, in some ways an end to the series because we look at these guys larger than light figures, but then we realize they're dealing with the same things we are on an everyday basis. The death of a loved one, moving on, living life. I thought the documentary was one of the best things we've done yep. in 40 years at ESPN. No I, mean, I, I, I know the latest is the greatest. We have a recency bias, but it's going to be, it's going to stand the test of time. And the last night, Scott, Scott Van Pelt, did something on the Wizards. We're going to try to dump this as much as possible because obviously the Wizards didn't really show up in the last dance. And tonight I had suggested, and maybe they'll do it, I'm not sure, I suggested a little segment called The Next Dance where they should just talk about hmm. talk about how successful this team was. Get Wennington on tonight or Ron Harper. I know Ron Harper for many years dealt with a stutter, and that's part of the reason I think he hasn't done a lot of media over the years, even though he was an integral part to that goal theme. But I bring those two guys up along with, you know, a couple of other guys like Dickie Simpkins or somebody that's just random. They were a part of that first team after Jordan, the Tim Floyd team, the 13 and 37 Bulls in the 50 game season. So if we wanted to kind of extend it out even more to juxtapose the greatness of Michael, Phil, Scotty, Dennis, Kerr, etc., um, all those guys with the Bulls box, maybe the best example is then go polar opposite and get one of these guys that was on the ride of a lifetime, and then ended up on a 13-37 and 37 team that barely anybody paid attention to. Maybe we'll go that way tonight. Maybe we won't, but definitely there's still some interest to keep talking about. Well, and tomorrow night to that end, Zubin, Game 6, the movie. It's a two-and-a-half-hour event that starts at 8 o'clock our time uh, on ESPN. I've set the uh, the DVR to record it, so looking forward to that already. You know, just a couple of things. Steve Kerr, the fact that he had the wherewithal to start watching John Paxson, because when he's a member... Kerr of Cleveland, he realizes that, uh, you know, that's the spot I want to be, and if I can uh, emulate uh, Pax and what he does for that team, then maybe I can be his replacement. But what stuck with me about those, uh, the core of the Bulls during that last championship run, Steve Kerr, 
Only scholarship, Arizona. Dennis Rodman, junior college. Scotty Pippen started as a manager uh, at Central Arkansas. Michael Jordan cut from his high school basketball team. Stick to it. Uh, kind of a lesson to be learned there, Zubin. Not for everybody doesn't turn out that way, but the start that those guys had, uh, anything but glorious as they worked their way uh, to the team that they became. No, I couldn't agree more. And I also think it paid dividends for these guys into the future so well because you think about a guy like Steve Kerr. And Steve Kerr, essentially, that winning set him up for such great success because Steve Kerr is still, you could say in some ways he was ahead of his time, he is still one of the most accurate three-point shooters in NBA history. And obviously, you can fiddle with the numbers. It's a little harder to be better than Kerr now because guys are jacking up so many shots. And if you're shooting 40% from three-point range, you're actually a great three-point shooter. But I think there's something to be said that he was ahead of his time. Of all the guys that you mentioned, because Jordan's had a second act as an owner, and some of these other guys have gone into media and done some other things, but a guy like Steve Kerr was a great three-point shooter at a time where three-point shooting was important but not critical, and then he became the head coach of a team that revolutionized the NBA via three-point shooting, and while most of the credit goes to Curry, I think there is something to be said where Kerr could say, listen, Steph, you're, you got more talent in your right hand than I had in my entire body. But I made my hay shooting that ball behind the arc when it was not in vogue. Now it's the coolest thing to do. You got the green light anywhere. I think Curry deserves 99.9% of the credit for the player that he's become, a 6'3 guy that plays under the rim that has changed the way basketball is played. But I do think getting the surreptitious green light and a wink and a nod from a guy that said, kid, I was shooting three-pointers before you were born, really says something about the way he has had an impact on the game back then and the game today. Zubin, uh, one more thing on the last dance for me. The flu game, or as Michael Jordan calls it, the food poisoning game. Still doesn't add up. And I know there's been a lot talked about here the last couple of days. Dan Patrick had a guy called in, said he was the one that delivered the pizza. Saw there was a Salt Lake City radio station that also had the same kind of conversation with somebody claiming at least to be the guy that delivered the pizza. Your takeaway from that, because that story still doesn't pass the sniff test to me. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where uh, I think at the end of the day, that's a great story. But to me... The one thing that I still think gets Utah fans upset, and, and, and I understand it, and you're just going to have to live with it, is obviously the push-off. I think that's mm. one of the most important calls, non-calls, in modern NBA history. I'm not saying the Bulls wouldn't have won the championship if there had been a push-off call on Jordan, but you got to remember, of the six titles, and Trent, I'm sure you followed it very closely, as I recall, now correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think any of those games with the Bulls, any of their six championships went to seven games. They did not. That's the other part, right? Yep. That's the other part of Jordan that's amazing. 6-0 in the finals, six-time MVP, right. and never once were they stretched to a seventh game. Now, with their, with their reputation and their proclivity to win, I don't think I would ever bet against Michael Jordan in a game seven anywhere. But the fact that they weren't stretched to a game seven, to me, says as much about Michael and that team versus the flu game or the pizza or the push-off. There's so many great things because it was sort of like the crescendo, the last moment for the last dance, the last game of the last dance. All of that was there. But I think the big macro fact that they never really had to go to a last game is something that 
maybe isn't discussed as much and probably should. Yeah. I love Costas's line, Zubin. Bob Costas was part of it. He referred to it, and I'm paraphrasing, that, that push on Russell was uh, kind of the equivalent to the Mater D using his hand gesture to sew a customer to his table. <laughs> which I thought was uh, really well said. Zubin, uh, as always, thank you for what you do for us. Appreciate you coming on. Uh, have a wonderful weekend. We'll be off on Monday, but hopefully your, your schedule will allow, us to, uh, allow you uh, to join us on Tuesday, a week from today, when re- we resume. Thank you, Zubin. See you next Tuesday, thanks. Good to talk to you. Zubin Mahente from ESPN. All right, good stuff, as always, with Zubin Trent. Uh, no, no surprise. No, not at all. A great conversation, and boy, just a pep in the step. Sports, it's coming uh, back. Trent. They're That's, inching their way back. It, it certainly feels like this is a week we get some some clarity. There's um, a bunch of high level meetings going on, trying to figure. out. I think there's a race for Las Vegas between the NBA <laughs> and the NHL. I yeah. really do. Who's going to get there first? There's not a lot of hockey rinks in Las Vegas. Right. There are a number of basketball venues. I mean, the pack. There's what four conference tournaments going on uh, in the month of March, but uh, everybody's going to want the T-Mobile. Sure, the, the biggest arena sure. there. I mean, I can't. I want have fans in it. Won't but. have fans. Well, and just you're, you're talking about. You can't just lay ice down. No. You're not talking about a pond. You have to have a professional <laughs> rink in the desert. Basketball is easier to do that. Precisely. You can put a court up and and I mean, think of uh, we watch whatever episode seven and eight when they're talking about Space Jam. They built basically that dome right, for Jordan. Yeah. I mean, you could build something like that. Mm-hmm. The NBA could just put that together mm-hmm. and put four or five of those up in whatever area. Say, all right, we're good to go. It would be a very simple equation. Hockey, on the other hand, a little more difficult. Yeah, a lot more difficult, no doubt about that. All right, Cappy's going to join the program. We'll get Cappy's thoughts. Uh, we can't. I, I can't get enough of the show, and I'm already looking forward. As I said to Zubin, I've set the uh, the DVR to record uh, the uh, game six, the movie. It's two and a half hours. Really? Yes. Tomorrow night starts at eight, wow. ends at ten thirty. Um. I'm almost tempted to, although I'm sure we'll want to talk about it on Thursday, mm-hmm. to watch it the next day just to zip through the commercials. <laughs> right. Because two and a half hours of footage we've never seen, apparently. Really? And this is all, as you mentioned weeks ago, when the series first started, you know, you'd love to see, once this wraps up, all the stuff that was on the cutting room floor type of thing. Right, and right. apparently this is it. Did you see uh, tonight ABC yes. has something yeah. with... Ray Cole tweeted that on the yeah. weekend. Is it Magic s- and um, um, Stephen A. Smith. Oh, nice. Yeah, they have something on it, so I'm sure I'll watch that. It's, uh, it was so good. You know, I should have asked Zubin, and maybe he wouldn't know the answer to this. We're, only, we're running out of show here. What award is this eligible to win? All of this them. This series. All of them? Okay. <laughs> all right. I'm with you. And it Give should it a Grammy. Win all of them. <laughs> An Oscar, a Grammy. Yep. Give it to them all. Com- uh, clean sweep. Helped us out. Uh, yes, it did in a big, big way. Murph and Andy coming your way at 2. The Fanatics will slide on in here at 4 o'clock tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. It's morning rush time. Trent and I back tomorrow. Cappy, amongst others, going to be a part of the program tomorrow. David Kaplan from Chicago. We're Miller and Condon. Thanks for being with us. We're 10 to noon Monday through Friday on Des Moines Sports Station, 1460 KXNO and 106.